Hello and welcome to Walt Disney by Neil Gabler, Chapter 19. It was a burden. The demands not only in producing the animations, but in re-educating the animators and reinventing the entire process would have been enormous even if Walt hadn't been the workaholic he was. To stave off another breakdown, he tried to maintain his new exercise schedule, continuing to ride on horseback with Lillian, occasionally returning early from the studio to do so, and to swim and ice skate. At one point, he even took dancing lessons with Lillian. In spite of all your work, I'm still a lousy dancer, he wrote his instructor self-deprecatingly years later, and at another point, boxing lessons. Yet these were concessions wrung grudgingly from him. One gregarious and out, once gregarious and outgoing, he now channeled his enthusiasm into the studio and was virtually withdrawn outside it. He socialized even less than before, claiming that it took too much of one's energy and saying that he preferred to get a good night's sleep as it leaves me in better condition in the morning to carry on the work. Sometimes he would invite a few of the animators, Fred Moore, Ham Lusk, Norm Ferguson, to the house on Lyric Avenue for a backyard game of badminton, but these occasions were rare and gradually petered out, one attendee said, because Walt became too important to mingle socially with his staff. Walt claimed it was because Lillian preferred privacy and the house belongs to the woman. Walt even stopped attending studio parties because Lillian said the animators' wives would sometimes get tipsy and reproach him for some imagined slight to their husbands. That's a part of them I don't want to see, Walt said, though he made another business trip to New York in July 1933 and stopped in Chicago on the way back to see the Century of Progress Fair there, taking his first plane ride on the final leg from Salt Lake City to Los Angeles. He seldom traveled either and admitted that he would rather spend a vacation at home. But he did have one new recreational passion, one activity outside the studio that seemed to excite him, polo. Polo, oddly enough, had become something of a fad in Hollywood in the 1930s, where it was regarded as a way for those who had been previously marginalized, many of them Jewish immigrants, to raise their status by aping the manners of the well-born. From Poland to Polo went the quip about Hollywood moguls. As Walt told it, he was becoming frustrated with his morning golf games when sometime in the spring of 1932, humorist Will Rogers and film executive Daryl F. Zanuck, both of whom were polo enthusiasts, suggested that he take up polo instead. After watching a few matches at their invitation, Walt decided that it was golf on horseback and bought a, and bought a few ponies. Of course, it was not in Walt Disney's nature to do anything casually. He immediately began recruiting staff from the studio, including Roy, and hired a polo champion named Gil Proctor to lecture them in the studio conference room on the fine points of the game. At six every morning throughout the spring and summer, eight players would gather at the Dubrock Riding Academy in the San Fernando Valley, where they would break into teams and practice. Walt eventually installed a polo cage at the studio so players could swat balls during their lunch break, and he put a dummy horse in his backyard and spent mornings, even before heading to Dubrock, sitting there knocking balls. On Sunday mornings, the crew would often congregate at Will Rogers' ranch for impromptu matches. During the games, Rogers would jibe Walt, calling him Mickey or Mickey Mouse. 
By the spring of 1933, dressed in a tweed jacket, jodhpurs, and high boots, Walt was ready to play matches at the more rigorous Riviera Country Club in posh Brentwood, where the movie stars and studio executives like Zanuck played, an indication of how Walt's status, if not his polo skills, had risen. Calling themselves the Mickey Mouse team, Walt joined with Roy and other studio personnel like Norm Ferguson, Dick Lundy, and Gunther Lessing, but he also played with, among others, Will Rogers, producer Walter Wanger, and actors Johnny Mac Brown, James Gleason, Leslie Howard, and Spencer Tracy, who became one of the very few people outside the immediate family ever invited into the Disney home, according to fellow polo player Bill Cottrell, who was courting Lillian's divorced sister. Hazel at the time, and thus Sister Hazel at the time, and thus was almost part of the Disney family himself. Cottrell believed that Tracy was for a while the man whom Walt considered his best friend, though he was basically a polo friend, which testified to how few real attachments Walt had. Most Sundays now, Walt and Lillian would drive out to Riviera, stopping to buy a big bag of popcorn on the way, which Lillian would munch while she watched the matches. By the end of the year, even though he was only a middling player, his best handicap was a one-goal rating out of a possible ten. He was recruiting ringers to play with him and had begun venturing throughout California and even Mexico for matches. At the time, he had six ponies of his own and would soon buy a stable of four ponies for Roy, eventually supplying horses for those who could not afford them. It's my only sin, he wrote his mother that December. I don't gamble or go out and spend my money on other people's wives or anything like that, so I guess it's okay. Anyway, the wife approves of it. Walt's sudden exuberance over polo and his athletic regimen generally had not only been a way to keep his mood buoyant and his health sound. The doctors had advised both Walt and Lillian that they would have a better chance of conceiving a child if they exercised more vigorously, and this was a powerful incentive. Happily, it seemed to have its desired effect. In the summer of 1932, Lillian got pregnant again, setting off another wave of euphoria. Walt immediately bought one and a half acres on Woking Way, a narrow, quiet street near the studio in the Los Feliz section of Los Angeles that snaked up into the Hollywood Hills and began constructing a $50,000 12-room French Norman-style home there. We had been living in a little place where I couldn't turn around, Walt told an interviewer, so I made the architect add three or four yards to every room in the house. Walt admitted it was a rush job, roughly two months from start to finish, obviously racing against the baby's birth. And then Lillian suffered another miscarriage. When, late in the spring of 1933, with the Disneys in their new and spacious home, they learned that Lillian was pregnant yet again, their mood was cautious. Only gradually, as summer wore on, did they allow themselves some elation. Lily has been feeling fine and having no trouble at all, Walt wrote his mother that September. In fact, she is so healthy that she has been worried about it. Lillian wanted a girl, Walt said, because she seems to feel that she could get more pleasure out of dressing a little girl than a boy. Personally, I don't care, just as long as we do not get disappointed again. As the expected December birth date approached, Walt prepared. He had fixed up a large nursery with a bassinet and pink and blue decorations, tinies he called them, 
bought a, bought a horse for the child in anticipation and now just awaited the arrival. Really, it's quite a strange atmosphere for me, he wrote Flora again. I can't conceive of anything belonging to us. It seems all right for somebody else to have those things around, but not for us. I presume I'll get used to it, and I suppose I'll be as bad a parent as anybody else. I've made a lot of vows that my kid won't be spoiled, but I doubt it. It may turn out to be the most spoiled brat in the country. <laughs> After the kidnapping and murder of aviator Charles Lindbergh's infant son the year before, Walt hoped to keep the birth as quiet as possible. It didn't work out that way. He was in the act of receiving an award from Parents Magazine for Mickey Mouse at a luncheon at the studio on December 18th before 75 members of the press when someone interrupted and whispered to him, whispered to him, Thank you, he told the magazine's representative. This is the biggest moment of my life. You'll pardon, I hope, if I hurry away and show this beautiful award to my wife. And before finishing, Walt grabbed his coat and bolted, leaving the Toastmaster, Dr. Rufus von, Klein von Kleinschmidt, president of the University of Southern California, to explain to the befuddled guests, I'm afraid I'll have to accept the award for Mr. Disney myself. His wife is going to present him with another kind of award. He is on his way to become a parent, and thus to become a parent and thus become a fully qualified reader of the magazine which is honoring him today. Walt arrived at the hospital just before the delivery. Lillian said she knew he had arrived when she heard his distinctive hacking cough. And proud father of baby girl, Lily and baby doing fine, he wired Roy, who was on a train bound for home after fighting a copyright infringement suit in New York. The Disneys now had a new eight pound, two ounce daughter, Diane Marie Disney. As for Walt's animated offspring, Mickey Mouse, he was still thriving, even as Walt's attention had been diverted to the Silly Symphony cartoons. The three little pigs, Walt admitted, had overshadowed Mickey, and Walt told one reporter that he was disappointed, but added, I'll think of something that will bring Mickey back bigger than ever. In fact, though the pigs had swept the nation, Mickey continued over the following two years to enjoy a popularity that rivaled that of Chaplin in his heyday. The Mickey Mouse Clubs thrived, and Walt boasted with a heavy dose of hyperbole that the membership had swelled to 50 million by the fall of 1933. Less hyperbolically, Literary Digest reported that Mickey played before nearly 500 million paid admissions in 1935. He also continued to receive accolades from nearly every quarter. Gilbert Seldes, writing in Esquire, gushed of Mickey's first color cartoon, The Band Concert, that none of dozens of works produced in America at the same time in all the other arts can stand comparison with this one, and the nation extolled Mickey as the supreme artistic achievement of the moving picture. Even First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt once commented that her husband loved Mickey Mouse and he always had to have that cartoon in the White House, though perhaps the highest compliment paid to Mickey was by a patient in a New York City convalescent home who was so overcome during a Mickey Mouse screening that he forgot his crutches and walked out of the theater unassisted. Mickey was no less popular or lauded overseas. Fortune noted that he was an international hero, better known than Roosevelt or Hitler, a part of the folklore of the world. By one account, Queen Mary of England once arrived late for a tea rather than miss the end of a charity screening of Mickey's Nightmare. Orchestra conductor Arturo, to Arturo Tosian Tosian Tosanini or Toshinini? 
Toscanini saw the band concert in which Mickey leads a band with disastrous results six times and was so smitten by it that he extended an invitation to Walt to visit him in Italy. When a program of Disney cartoons featuring Mickey as well as the symphonies was shown in Moscow, the New York Times reported that not since the days of the food shortage have the streets of Moscow witnessed such queues as those waiting to buy tickets for the American movies. Russian director Sergei Eisenstein requested permission to publish several of the scenarios in a book. <clears throat> By this time, Mickey's burgeoning cottage industries had begun to eclipse his screen success. Late in 1930, the Disneys had renewed their contract with George Borgfeldt to license Mickey Mouse products, though they decided to restrict his representation to toys. At the same time, a seamstress named Charlotte Clark had sewn a Mickey Mouse doll, which Roy raced to have ready for Christmas. Even though the company's strained financial situation limited the production, and even though each was handmade, the studio sold more than 25 gross in just five weeks. Within months, Roy, who had been lobbying publishers for a Mickey Mouse book just a year earlier, was now besieged by offers, and taking a page from Walt was insisting on a real high-class book. That spring, with Borgfeldt boasting to Roy that we are building up a big Mickey Mouse business with many of the leading distributors, the studio opened a New York office to handle the merchandise that Borgfeldt did not represent. But Walt and Roy, who were trying to raise money for the color conversion at the time, were impatient and dissatisfied. Roy said that the Borgfeldt royalty statement for 1930 arrived in longhand like some bunch of farmers, and that the return amounted to only $63, while the Charlotte Clark dolls alone, which Roy handled himself, netted the studio $350. They are great hands to do lots of talking, he groused about Borgfeldt. Moreover, the quality control was terrible. Disney products were often shoddy, which angered both Walt and Roy, and the interval from the conception of a product to its marketing was often interminably, interminably long, or interminably wrong, long, interminably long. Despairing that the Borgfeldt company insufficiently exploited the character, but yet being locked into the contract, the Disneys had even enlisted Harry Wooden of the Mickey Mouse Clubs and Irving Lesser, the brother of producer Sol Lesser, to troll for marketing opportunities that Borgfeldt seemed disinclined to find. And then, into this morass strode Herman Kamen, known to everyone, and Kamen did seem to know everyone, as Kay. Kamen was... Cayman was, one acquaintance said, one of the homeliest men I had ever seen. He was a large, shapeless, ungainly man with a spatulate nose and thick pop-bottle-bottom glasses, and he parted his black hair unfashionably down the middle of his scalp, only adding to the impression of his gaucheness. Yet this look was partly by design. One associate said that Cayman was proud of his homeliness and used it to ingratiate himself with customers in his chosen profession, at which he was a master. Kay Kamen was born to sell. He had come from a Jewish family in Baltimore, quit school to become a hat salesman, and after years on the road where he became an expert pinocchio player, joined a department store promotional firm in Kansas City. He and a colleague there, an advertising man named Streeter Blair, left to form their own company, Cayman Blair, also headquartered in Kansas City, which, like the one they had departed, specialized in creating displays and campaigns for department stores. One of those displays for a store in Los Angeles apparently caught Walt Disney's eye early in 1932, 
1942, when he was burning over Borchfeldt's dereliction, and he wired Cayman to gauge his interest in promoting Mickey Mouse. Cayman, then in New York on business, left for California that very day. When he arrived at the studio, as Roy remembered it, Cayman walked into Roy's office and said, I don't know how much business you're doing, but I'll guarantee you that much business that much business and give you 50% of everything I do over. It was a sign both of his salesmanship and of the rather offhanded way the company conducted business that they signed a contract with him that July after the Borchfeld agreement had expired. Under its terms, the studio was to receive 60% of the first $100,000 in royalties with the 50-50 split thereafter, and Cayman was to foot all expenses including his staff, the New York office, and a showroom and hotel suite in Chicago. Now Cayman set out to do for Walt Disney Enterprises, the new merchandise arm of the studio, what Walt had been doing for Walt Disney Productions, its filmmaking arm. He was going to reinvent it, transform it into a sleek, quality-controlled, revenue-producing operation that would in time have the added effect of making Mickey Mouse even more popular as a brand than he was as a movie star. Believing that Disney should be affiliated with only the finest manufacturers, Cayman quickly canceled contracts with less prestigious and aggressive companies and signed up with bigger and better ones. National Dairy Products, Ingersoll Watches, General Foods, which would shortly pay a million dollars for the right to put Mickey Mouse and his friends on post toasty cereal boxes, and even Cartier Jewelers, which was soon marketing a diamond Mickey Mouse bracelet. However, his greatest achievement, his greatest achievement, Cayman said, was getting the three little pigs up in lights in New York's strictly kosher ghetto and making them like it. Cayman was a whirlwind. Within a year, there were 40 licenses for Mickey Mouse products. A year after that, in 1934, Cayman, with a staff numbering 15 in New York alone, had helped orchestrate $35 million of sales in Disney merchandise in the United States and an equal amount overseas, and he had opened branches across Europe and even in Australia. Thanks largely to Cayman's efforts, the image of Mickey Mouse was ubiquitous and unavoidable. Shoppers carry Mickey Mouse satchels and briefcases, reported the New York Times in tribute to the marketing phenomenon, bursting with Mickey Mouse soap, candy, playing cards, bridge favors, hairbrushes, chinaware, alarm clocks, and hot water bottles wrapped in Mickey Mouse paper, tied with Mickey Mouse ribbon and paid for, out of Mickey Mouse purses with savings hoarded in Mickey Mouse banks. Children, it continued, lived in a new Mickey Mouse world. They wear Mickey Mouse caps, waists, socks, shoes, slippers, garters, mittens, aprons, bibs, and underthings, and beneath Mickey Mouse rain caps and umbrellas. They go to school where Mickey Mouse desk outfits turn lessons into pleasure. They play with Mickey Mouse velocipedes, footballs, baseballs, bounce balls, bats, catching gloves, boxing gloves, dollhouses, doll dishes, tops, blocks, drums, puzzles, games, paint sets, sewing sets, drawing sets, stamp camping sets, jack sets, bubble sets, pool toys, push toys, animated toys, tents, camp stools, sand pails, masks, blackboards, and balloons. And even that list did not begin to exhaust the number of Mickey Mouse products. 
Just as Mickey on film had come to be regarded as a tonic antidote to the depression, so did Mickey's image on merchandise. Round, colorful, appealing Mickey Mouse had become the graphic representation of indomitable happiness, even in the face of national despair. Wherever he scampers here or overseas, the Times observed, the sun of prosperity breaks through the clouds. When Ingersoll issued a Mickey Mouse watch, it proved so popular that the company had to cancel its advertising campaign because it had already sold out its factory's capacity for months to come. Even Roy bought a dozen for his personal use. The Lionel Corporation, manufacturers of toy electric chain, toy electric trains, had been in receivership in 1934 when it licensed a Mickey and Minnie hand car. The company sold 253,000 units at Christmas, making it profitable once again and allowing it to discharge its equity receivers. There is no case that I remember where more success was met with than in this case, the bankruptcy judge commented. The mouse as merchandiser had roughly the same effect on his own studio. In his first four years, Keeman had increased the licensing 10,000% to just under $200,000 in royalties a year, and as early as 1934, Walt was claiming that he made more money from the ancillary rights to Mickey than from Mickey's cartoons. Thus, Disney became the first studio to recognize what would become a standard business practice in Hollywood 40 years later, that one could harvest enormous profits from film-related toys, games, clothing, and other products. Indeed, as Literary Digest reported, it is no exaggeration to state that Walt Disney Enterprises has become the tail that wags the mouse. There was another reason, beyond Mickey's visual appeal, that the merchandise was seemingly becoming more popular than the cartoons. On screen, Mickey had faltered, if not in audience appeal, than with critics and even within the studio. He was scarcely five years old when, given his split personality between Chaplin and Fairbanks, he began to suffer the inevitable identity crisis. Recognizing the problem, Jack Hanna, an animator at the time, recalled, we began to have an awful hard time defining stories for Mickey. He began as a mischief maker, but he developed right off the bat into a little hero type, and you couldn't knock him around too much. Animation historian Michael Barrier believed that there had been different conceptions of Mickey in different media, but that the cartoon Mickey, who had arrived with a gleefully puckish anarchic streak, increasingly came to resemble the comic strip Mickey, who was thrust into situations in which he was required to act heroically, essentially sacrificing his, sacrificing his chaplain self, his chaplain half to his Fairbanks half. Mickey now was always was always rescuing Minnie from the clutches of the sadistic peg leg Pete. While these halves of Mickey were warring, were warring, he was plagued by yet another almost metaphysical question: What exactly was Mickey Mouse? Was he a mouse with mouse-like attributes that led him to bedevil his antagonists, or was he a human in the form of a mouse? More to the point, was he a little boy in the form of a mouse? This question had troubled Walt and the animators, too, and had even prompted some critics to speculate whether, as Theater Arts Monthly put it, Mickey would be abandoned gradually in favor of the symphonies, or whether his creators would divorce him from the animal world and marry him into the human. Back in 1928, he seemed to have been conceptualized as a mouse with human affectations, but by 1932, he had come to resemble a happy and sometimes hapless child, which may have made Mickey Mouse the first casualty of the studio's growing obsession with realism. 
The early and impudent Mickey Mouse seemed to belong in a universe not unlike the one cartoonist George Harriman created for his crazy cat, an arid abstract plane where rubber hose was more appropriate than squash and stretch. In the beginning of the 30s, animator Eric Larson acknowledged, Mickey could do almost anything, stretch his arms, use his body. Later in the 30s, he was not able to do that. What had happened between these two Mickeys was realism. The early Mickey wasn't real in the sense that the little pigs were real, which is to say fully realized. In fact, he was barely a character. As he had rubber hose actions, he had broad rubber hose emotions too, which adapted to any situation, rather than a core personality that, as in squash and stretch, could change but retained its basic identity. But when Walt introduced realism as a means of developing personality and thus eliciting a stronger audience reaction, Mickey was bereft. Walt realized the minute we got into believable stories that held up with motivations and character and personality, animator Ward Kimball said, you open up a limitless world, whereas the mouse was limited. Since Walt couldn't countenance dispatching his alter ego to oblivion, he tried to conform him to the new landscape. Throughout 1932 and 1933, Mickey gradually became rounder, shorter, thicker, less sinewy, his mouse-like features shrinking and softening as his human features, his hands, his head, and his feet grew, and his mouse-like characteristics yielding to gentler, more human ones. By 1936, Les Clark was describing Mickey to a group of would-be animators as having a feeling of cuteness and boyishness, and he said he is generally considered and handled as a little boy. Where he had been, where he had been light-footed and snappy in the early days, his feet were heavy now. His feet should be at least half the volume of his body, Clark advised, which literally gave him a gravity he had not had. More, he was not always dressed in his trademark shorts anymore. As early as 1932, he was wearing other clothes, lived in a house, and had his pet dog, Pluto. Walt even insisted once that Mickey and Minnie were married in real life, though they played boyfriend and girlfriend on screen. But the reconceptualization and domestication that were intended to humanize Mickey actually wound up neutralizing him by blunting what few sharp edges he had. Losing his angularity, he also lost his impertinence and cheek, so that where Walt had once compared him to the incorrigible chaplain, he now compared him to eager to please Harold Lloyd. Mickey even lost the self-centered obliviousness that had made him so apt a figure for the Depression. To me, there was something perfect about the way Mickey looked in the 30s, children's book author John, Jan Wall once remarked. When they gave him that zoot suit and made him part of California suburbia, I stopped paying attention to him. It was when he fell into our ordinary world. That's when I think he lost his luster. But if Mickey Mouse was a victim of pacification, he was a victim of his own popularity as well. The tragedy of success. He had won that popularity through an impish subversiveness. He could only maintain it, Walt felt, by becoming inoffensive. The rodent who had, become, who had begun life by bucking Minnie out of an airplane and maliciously pressing a pig's teats to make music was now on his best behavior. If our gang ever put Mickey in a situation less wholesome than sunshine, Walt wrote in 1933, Mickey would take Minnie by the hand and move to some other studio. Indeed, Walt continued, he is never mean or ugly. He never lies or cheats or steals. He is a clean, happy little fellow who loves life and folk. He never takes advantage of the weak, and we see to it that nothing ever happens that will cure his faith in the transcendent... I 
and the transcendent destiny of one Mickey Mouse or his conviction that the world is just a big apple pie. He is youth, the great unlicked and uncontaminated, to which the nation grumbled that Mickey had turned into an international bore. With Mickey beginning to fade as an aesthetic force, the studio needed a new star, a character who had been conceived with and internalized the insolence that Mickey had lost, a character who could generate gags as Mickey now could not, and a character who was immune to the expectations of civility that burdened Mickey. The new character that evolved, in fact, would become a foil to Mickey, the unbridled ID to his anodyne ego. For a studio that was already becoming exasperated with its star, he was the anti-Mickey, or anti-Mickey, or rather all the things that Mickey had been and more. But it was a long gestation. Mickey had begun life visually and then found a voice so that he was a design before he was a character, which had been part of his problem. His foil began life as a voice and then had to find a physical form, which was part of his success. The voice belonged to a tiny, apple-cheeked, 29-year-old Oklahoma-born milkman named Clarence Nash. In school in rural Missouri, where his family moved when he was nine, he found an early talent for making animal noises, which he later parlayed into an act playing the mandolin and performing bird calls on the Redpath Lyceum, Lyceum and Chautauqua Circuit. When he got married, he promised his 18-year-old bride that he would quit show business for a more secure position, and the Nashes moved to California, where he got a job with the Adore Dairy, visiting schools in a milk wagon pulled by miniature horses, and making his animal noises to entertain the children. He also performed periodically on a local radio program. During one of these broadcasts late in 1933, Walt, who was listening for voices he could use in the cartoons, said he heard Nash and subsequently invited him to the studio. <coughs> Excuse me. Nash had a different version. He said that he visited the studio on his own initiative, got an interview with Jackson, and did a rendition of Mary Had a Little Lamb in a voice that he modeled after a bleeding goat. While Nash recited, Jackson secretly switched on the intercom to Walt's office, and Walt burst in, shouting, That's our talking duck! Walt didn't know exactly what to do with Nash yet, but signed him to a retainer anyway. It would be another year, during which Nash went back to work for the dairy before Walt summoned him. Nash once said it was because he had told Walt that the iWorks studio wanted to use his voice for a duck and cast him in 1934 as an irascible, selfish, bottom-heavy, long-beaked, and long-necked duck, long-necked duck and wise little hen who begs off helping the hen plant and harvest her corn by feigning a bellyache every time she approaches. It was an instant stardom, though the studio did copyright the character shortly thereafter, dressing him in a blue sailor suit with a sailor's cap, because, Walter later, because Walt later said, being a duck, he likes water. Sailors and water go together. When the studio decided to pair him with Mickey Mouse and Orphan's Benefit, the anti-Mickey and the Mickey together, Ward Kimball, who helped animate the cartoon, called it a turning point, both for the studio and for the further development of personality animation. In the cartoon, Mickey, acting as master of ceremonies at a benefit for orphan mice, introduces Donald, who recites Mary Had a Little Lamb, and then erupts when the audience razzes him as he begins Little Boy Blue. By cartoons in, the young mice are tormenting him with a bombardment of bricks and boxing gloves, and Donald is apoplectic. Well, the reaction that came pouring into the studio from the country was tremendous, Kimball recalled. The kids in the theater loved or hated or booed Donald Duck. 
By early 1935, when Donald was harassing Mickey in the band concert, considered by many the best of the Mickey Mouse cartoons, the duck had already begun overtaking the cartoon's nominal star. There had been signs that the impudence and cockiness of the mouse were dwindling, that Mickey was going polite, Gilbert Seldes observed in the New York Journal. In the band concert, the duck takes over. It is a bad, wicked duck, a malicious and mischievous duck, a duck corresponding to all the maddening attractiveness of bad little boys and girls, a superb character. In some respects, Donald Duck seemed to offer audiences both a vicarious liberation from the conventional behavior and morality to which they had to to which they had to dis had to subscribe in their own lives, and which the duck clearly transgressed, and, since he usually got his comeuppance, a vicarious revenge against the pretentious, unattractive, and ornery at a time when the entire world seemed to be roiling in anger and violence. Whereas Mickey had turned into a smiling cipher, the lumpy duck was hot-tempered, vain, pompous, boastful, rude, suspicious, self-satisfied, and self-indulgent, a taxonomy of misconduct and offensiveness. Audiences quickly identified him with President Roosevelt's outspoken and irritable Secretary of the Interior, Harold Ikes, who was known generally as the Great Curmudgeon. Sometimes it was hard for an audience to tell whether Ikes was imitating the duck or the duck was imitating Ikes, Walt said. Whether or not the curmudgeonly Donald liberated audiences, he certainly liberated the storymen and animators at the studio from the shackles of Mickey. Every time we put him into a trick, a temper, a joke, said one writer of the mouse, thousands of people would belabor us with nasty letters. That's what made Donald Duck so easy. He was our outlet. Everyone knew he was bad and didn't give a damn. So we can whip out three Donald Duck stories in the time it takes us to work out one for the mouse. Walt himself agreed, saying that Mickey was funny only when the situation was funny, while intemperate Donald was inherently funny. The duck can blow his top and commit mayhem, Walt once told an interviewer. Mickey couldn't. Nash, whose quacking voice had inspired the character, credited Walt with extending Donald's range and turning him into a personality by suggesting that Nash try being angry in the duck voice or laughing in it. Jack Hanna, who would later direct many of the Donald Duck cartoons, said that Donald could be anything. He had every emotion a human being had. He could be cute, mischievous, go from warm to cool at any moment. You could half kill him and he'd come right back. He instigated trouble. Not mean, but he always saw a chance to have fun at other people's expense. In short, Donald was the prime example of Walt's caricatured reality and the first Disney star to be born full-blown from that aesthetic. Now that he was beginning to move from featured player into leading man, the gingly duck that Art Babbitt and Dick Humor had designed for the wise little hen was shortened, softened, and rounded by animator Fred Spencer, just as Mickey had been to make him visually cuter and more expressive. By 1935, he was being featured in his own series of books, and by the fall of that year, though Donald had yet to star in his own cartoon, Walt was already fretting that Nash, who had been offered a three-year contract extension at $55 a week, might try to strong-arm them. If we start using the duck character a lot, Walt memoed Roy, we don't want Clarence to get any inflated ideas of his importance here. 
Then he attempted to tamp his own worries by saying that if Nash were to leave the studio and voice a duck elsewhere, the Disneys could probably sue. In the end, Nash signed the contract and Donald finally got a starring role in Donald and Pluto the following year, and then a full series of his own. But even before that, Variety observed of Donald's appearance in another Mickey cartoon. Again, it's manifest how fast-growing is the vogue of Donald Duck, the volubly irate gander who bids fair to who bids fair to par Mickey as Disney's favorite creation. To most Americans, Donald already had. Stay tuned for more next Monday.